Watto and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Welcome to the second episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast where I, Ian Coburn, and guests discuss the works of the writer P.G. Woodhouse, one book at a time. Today I'm joined by Alexander Rennie of the Forgotten Towns podcast to discuss Woodhouse's second novel, A Prefect's Uncle. There will be spoilers. Can I ask you, Alex, when did you first become aware of P.G. Woodhouse? Okay, so I think I was dimly aware of him and his oeuvre in my youth. Pretty sure there were one or two advertisements back in the 80s that probably used some sort of take on the Jeeves and Worcester characters. But I was not really a reader of his work until probably like many of my approximate generation i watched the stephen fry and hugh laurie adaptation on television of Mm. various jeeves stories which i think was approximately 1990 and i was just about still at school at that point and was very taken by the the wit of this output and i think probably around the time of the second series which pretty much coincided with the end of school for me that transferred into probably procuring some of the written material upon which those episodes were based and they brought out italian book didn't they they did and i do own that one which was a compilation specifically yeah, specifically published for, for probably around the time of series two, but of yeah, course I have that too. <laughs> did you uh, did you watch that adaptation at the time? Ian? It sort of happened to coincide with when I was introduced to Woodhouse. Almost coincidentally, me and my brother we were just starting to dip our toes into adult books. Yes, because um, I know you're uh, you're. You're several years younger than me, and so our, our timelines are not quite contemporary in that way. What did you kick off with? It was very good, Jeeves, the, ah, okay. um, the short story collection. Um, yeah. yeah, both my parents liked P.G. Woodhouse, and they both thought that me and my brother would like them. But they might have been reminded of them by the fact that the TV show was on at the time. And I think they'd seen it, but I only saw the final episode of the first series. Ah, yes. And it might even have been on a repeat. It was one of the episodes that was based on Righto Jeeves. And I was very impressed by it. And I was very disappointed that I'd missed the rest of the series. And I waited and it seemed an age before there was another series. So when the second series came on, I was very excited because by then I think I'd read several P.G. Woodhouse books. Well, maybe some of your younger guests in episodes to come will be amazed about the lack of technological opportunity we had at that point to just catch up on things we'd missed. Because whilst those series eventually came out on video cassette, we had to wait quite a while for it. And what actually happened for me 
was, as well as getting stuck into some of the literature, I religiously recorded series two onto Betamax cassette um, from the television. And then I think possibly between series two and three or around that time as series one, which I also had missed most of, was rebroadcast. And I was there with my finger poised over the record button. So I had my own home recordings of those series. I do think some of those adaptations tailed off slightly towards the end. Yes, I would agree with that. I can lead from what I was just saying about my earlier introduction to Woodhouse into the sort of the school story part of his output, which of course predates the Jeeves stories by, by quite some chronological distance. And I think probably... I found myself before I went up to university with with a fair amount of time on my hands, and I I munched through the main Jeeves stories. Not probably, you know, all of them by any means, but I certainly in readily accessible ones from local bookshop I had, and I picked up I think Mike at Reken, which comes somewhat later chronologically than prefect's uncle but there are recognizable traits i think in the in the style and the setting and cricket maybe not quite so dominant at mike at Rican, but it still constitutes at least one chapter of you know gameplay narrative well um should i just do my little intro um yeah about this book Picking up from The Pot Hunters, which was his first published novel Mm. in in 1902, which was published by AC and Black. He quit his job at the bank and got a permanent position part-time working for the Globe newspaper on the By the Way column, which was on the front page of the newspaper. And he got that job through his old housemaster, who was the editor of the column. So he got more than just ins- subject matter inspiration from his time at Dulwich College. And he was also contributing to Punch by this time and writing verse for the Daily Chronicle. And there's a letter from him to his publishers in this book, this collection by Sophie Ratcliffe, P.G. Woodhouse, Life and Letters. December the 8th, 1902. Dear Sir, in reply to your letter of today, I beg to acknowledge receipt of your cheque for £6, 18 shillings and sevenpence. I must thank you for your very liberal proposal with regard to my next book, and I shall be only too glad to avail myself of it. I have finished a public school story of almost exactly the same length as the Pot Hunters, and can forward it immediately if you wish it. The title of the book is The Bishop's Uncle, and like the Pot Hunters, it deals chiefly with the outdoor life of the public school. There is a great deal of cricket in the book. In fact, strictly speaking, it is nearly all cricket, for very little else except that game goes on in the summer term at school. I hope if you do not like The Bishop's Uncle at first sight that you will let me revise it. I can generally improve on my work at a second attempt. I am doing a good deal of work for Punch now, and the editor sends back two out of every three of my manuscripts to be altered, and he always takes them when I return them in their corrected form. I should be very glad to receive 10% on the cheap American edition of The Pot Hunters. Yours faithfully, B.G. Woodhouse. 
find it amazing that there was an American edition of these books. I suppose it was probably meant for expats because who else in America at the time would be particularly interested in the doings of an English public school? I don't know. It does seem unlikely that someone sat in America with uh, no um, experience of cricket would particularly appreciate the machinations of how the plot unfolds in this book because there's an awful lot of cricketing detail that is not explained to the uninitiated, I would suggest. Yes, it certainly baffled me because I have no interest in cricket, as you know. That's part of the reason I got you on, so you can help me decode it all. (laughs) Well, I would be only too happy so to do, Ian. I suppose the one point I would make is that the outcomes of the cricketing segments insofar as they contribute to the development of the plot are fairly clearly signalled to those who didn't necessarily follow chapter and verse of oh, yeah. cricketing detail. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, there must have been, you know, a couple of chapters worth in there that you'd have just been skipping over whether intentionally or otherwise, because it will have meant very little. Yes. Well, in that letter, he admits it's mostly about cricket and most of his school stories are heavily focused on sport. And I suppose in doing that, he was reflecting not only the average public school boys priorities, but also generally the priorities of the public schools themselves. There was a heavy emphasis on sport. It was considered expected of a promising young man that he would excel on the cricket and rugby field as well as academically. Indeed, one is reminded, of course, of the odd boy by the Bonzo dog band. I do think it's very interesting. It's a reflection of him as well as the school system. He clearly had a happy time at Dulwich. Oh, yeah. Um, and in in that book, which, which is an excellent book that I'm sure we could uh, recommend to all listeners of the podcast, P.G. Woodhouse, A Life in Letters, edited by Sophie Ratcliffe. One of the great things about that book is... It's not just um, letters that you're left to get on and interpret. Fun and interesting, though, that would be the segments written in between work as a very creditable biography. Um, Yes. Mm. Uh, Yes. So in that letter, the working title, The Bishop's Uncle, is mentioned. It It obviously appeared as a prefect's uncle. Now, the title you might agree, is a little misleading. But the working title, The Bishop's Uncle, is even more, it would be doubly misleading. The title, The Bishop's Uncle, obviously derives from the fact that our hero, or the um, the chap through whose eyes we see the plot 
unfolding. I think it's fair to call him the hero, Gethryn. Yes, Gethryn um, is is known pretty much universally amongst his peers as the bishop. I felt actually, even when I was reading school stories, sort of ninety years after they were set or whatever, and and now one hundred and twenty years after they're set. There's enough recognisable universality to the school experience for it to not be just completely alien. I I didn't go to boarding school. I mean, I dare say some readers will have done. Possibly more of the readers might have done when this came out, although I don't know. Well, there were more children being sent to public school then. You know, middle-class families seeing the, the gateway into getting their children into positions of power and influence. But I think I read that the public school stories were mostly read by children at prep schools at, um, you know, younger children. To give them an an idea of what they were in for. Yeah. Or possibly just because it was more fun than reading about kids at prep schools. Oh, that brings me on to the fact that The Prefect's Uncle is a rare early Woodhouse novel that was not serialised. Nearly all of his other books were, including his previous book, The Pot Hunters, which was serialised in the public school magazine until it folded. And then his subsequent school stories were serialised in The Captain, which was another magazine aimed at public school kids. So, yeah, in their serial form, they were definitely aimed at public school children. But so, I can understand why the publisher, sorry to interrupt, why the publisher right. wanted uh, a title that would make it clear that it was to do with public school to get it to its intended audience, because the bishop's uncle, I mean, an uncle sounds like an old guy, but a bishop's uncle sounds like a doubly old guy. Whereas Farney, to whom that title alludes, is 14, I think. He, but he's, he, he's certainly younger than the bishop. Uh, he's four it. years younger than the, the bishop. Yes, it's a case, for those who haven't read it yet, of an uncle being younger than the nephew. Indeed. So I, I think that would make them 18 and 14, respectively, at a guess. Education. It's dedicated to Bill Townend, who Woodhouse aficionados might know as his lifelong friend with whom he collaborated on a book called Performing Flea. And this is set in a boarding school called Beckford. And it's interesting to me that he chose to invent a new school rather than simply set this story in the same boarding school as in his previous novel. Mm -hmm. He often used the same school twice, but there's only one other story set in Beckford. Which one's that, Darius? Was that something in a magazine yes yeah it's called Blackensop's benefit ah. and it appeared in the captain in 1904 and doesn't feature any of the same characters <laughs> so rather wasted the what you might think of a primary purpose for using the same school again yeah i guess he thought gethryn's story arc was done so i, su- I suppose so but i mean it again i don't want to jump the gun but I will anyway. Um, that, <laughs> that it's not like his depiction of Beckford College is so littered with detail 
that it would have required him to draw carefully a map of the grounds, the location of the buildings, a careful staff hierarchy, etc. I mean, we've got a potted collection of fairly interchangeable senior boys, some junior boys, most of whom are no deeper than a name and and a handful of masters all of whom actually seem to be house masters i don't think anything much was set in the classroom and so we don't really meet a whole load of other characters let alone background detail about yes them. actually that is a good point it is very different in that respect to the previous book the pot hunters which has a plethora of characters and is quite unfocused as a story. So... Whereas here, I think the the characters, such as they are, serve yes. the narrative arc, don't they? Which yes. is coherent. It's I got think... a few careful development devices that may seem a bit unlikely, but <laughs> the the story ha- does kind of hang together coherently. Just yes, about. I think it's a more professional book from a novelist's point of view, from story construction point of view, but it's maybe actually less entertaining than the previous mm. book for that reason, because... Unless you love cricket. It, yes, maybe. <laughs> well, it's got a main story and it's got a subplot, which we'll come on to. True, true. Okay, so Gethryn, the main character, is the head prefect of Leicester's house. The school, public schools are split into houses and each house has a housemaster and each house has a head boy. And in this case, it's the housemaster is called Lester and his house is not considered to be one of the more prestigious houses in the school. It's a less well-regarded house. And Gethryn's job as the head boy of the house is to lick it into shape. And this is quite a common trope in public school stories. I used to, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I used to read a whole load of public school stories by other authors when I was a kid, because my granddad had a collection of them for some reason. And in fact, I think it's a trope in a book called Acton's Feud by Frederick Swainson, which P.G. Woodhouse himself said was the book that inspired him to write a public school story. It's, uh, it's the underdog, isn't it? The, mm. yeah. Especially stories that are based around sports. You, it's not much of a story to have the best team win lots of games. You have to have an underdog. Indeed. So, and, and for them all clearly to get into scrapes along the way that threaten their progress and yet conveniently get resolved by convoluted means. Yes. Not so, quite as convoluted as what we find in later novels by Woodhouse, of course, but there are sort of the beginnings of one or two of those aspects. Yes, we should occasionally acknowledge that this is not prime Woodhouse. It kind of goes without saying, but there must be listeners thinking, this is not the Woodhouse that we know and love they're talking about, and they're just carrying on as if they haven't realised this. Uh, Yes, we should (laughs) acknowledge, yes, he would go on to greater things, but I think there's more of the Woodhouse touch in these early school stories than you might think, Mm -hmm. personally, um, which I'll try to prove with some of the quotes from it. Yeah, Gethryn's nickname, as we said, is the Bishop, and I personally think this is a nickname for the sake of giving him a nickname rather than it having any significance to the story. Indeed, and I almost made a point 
earlier on <laughs> about the fact that something like that rings true yes. to being at school. Um, full disclosure, I was at a public school. I just, it was not a boarding school. And so the concept of houses and some houses, particularly my own, being not very good at games, etc., is is certainly something that would ring true to somebody who knew that environment in any era, not just at the turn of the 20th century, but also, and I would imagine this is true at other schools as well, the concept of people having nicknames for slightly trivial reasons that are lost in the mists of time is something that is believable. Yes. Um, and therefore just lends a smidgen of verisimilitude to what otherwise might have just been a, I picked some random names out of the phone directory situation. Yes. Yeah. Did you have a nickname at school, Alex? I I had various nicknames at various points, but uh, the, the main one the listeners may or may not be interested in was the fact that uh, I was, at least for a season, called Haggis because I was short, fat and Scottish. Um, but there you go. It, they're not always uh, so pleasingly uh, approving as the bishop. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Boys can be cruel. Yes. Uh, Gethryn also appears, fact fans, in a short story called Personally Conducted, which appeared in Castles magazine in 1907. Gethryn's uh, best friend is called Marriott. And um, he's the facetious type. And there's always one of these in the school novels. It's a quote from him. There's a bad time coming for the headmaster if he doesn't mind what he's doing. He must learn that life is stern and life is earnest, which is a misquote from Longfellow. Life is real, life is earnest, which became a favourite quote of P.G. Woodhouse. He uses it countless times in his works. And when he's asking the uh, servant, has Gethryn come back yet? William, who had been gasping throughout this harangue for the intellectual pressure of Marriott's conversation, of which there was always plenty, was generally too much for him, caught thankfully at this last remark as being the only intelligible one uttered up to the present date, and made answer. Mr. Gethryns, he's gone out onto the field, Mr. Marriott. He come half an hour ago. And there's an example of Woodhouse using a phonetic rendering of the, the servant orders dialogue. It's probably a reasonable assumption that someone in that position would have been a, a local man who probably betrayed the local accent. And yes, one... I'm not sure where this is set precisely geographically. And it, and it probably was not germane to the conversation, let alone the plot, of exactly which um, part of the country where the school is. But I think, and I think the, the point's made in the, the book, the Ratcliffe one, that obviously Dulwich was his main, well, his only experience as a pupil of a public school. And of course that's very much in an urban environment in suburban mm. southeast london yes. all his schools were based on dulwich uh, i think ratcliffe and some of the other authors say but he liked to transplant them to the country maybe it's better for plot reasons to have it inaccessible to the outside world yes and um, that's probably true and i think it's likely that 
where he might have had in mind was where his parents ended up living in his later school years, which I think was Shropshire. Yes. And therefore he spent his holidays there. Obviously not not true earlier on when they were still in Hong Kong, I think, and he was passed around his aunt's <laughs> gleaning material for later novels. Speaking of which, in that first yeah. chapter, there's a reference to a perfect glut of aunts, which... Uh... <laughs> Uh, so knowledgeable fans of Woodhouse that might raise a chuckle. Absolutely. And it, it's quite amusing, I suppose, that the, the title therefore um, focuses on uh, not any of a glut of aunts, but, but an uncle and still less an uncle who fulfills any typical trait of uncledom, but actually turns out to be a boy of 14. Yes. Um, well, we'll come on to him in a minute. Um, <laughs> I also wanted to point out in the first chapter, there's the first Doyle reference of the book. There's a lot of Arthur Conan Doyle references in early Woodhouse. The, a boy called Skinner is compared to Moriarty. And I just wanted to point out that Sherlock Holmes only became famous really when his the short stories in The Strand started appearing in 1891. So only 12 years before this came out. So this is akin to us referring to a series from that began in 2011. And then there's this character, Reese. Reese's observations were not frequent, but when they came, did so for the most part in anecdotal shape. Somebody was constantly doing something which reminded him of something he had heard somewhere from somebody. The unfortunate part of it was that he exuded these reminiscences at such a leisurely rate of speed that he was rarely known to succeed in finishing any of them. He resembled those serial stories which appear in papers destined at a moderate price to fill an obvious void and which break off abruptly at the third chapter owing to the premature decease of the said periodicals. <laughs> Now, that's obviously a reference, if you're in the know, to the public school magazine folding three instalments into the serialisation of his previous novel. That's Most, brilliant, uh, isn't it? Of course, 99% of the readers wouldn't know about that, but probably, I don't know. Well, I, th I think upwards of 99% reading it now wouldn't know that, but it's possible that somebody reading this story when it first came out will have been aware that he wrote for periodical yes. that folded yeah no fair enough but, but it's a it's a bit of an end joke which i think shows that in spite of our you know the the casual listener we have in mind thinking God, why are you spending this time talking about inferior early material it shows the depth that's going on here and um, clearly not in in the same way as as later stories but you know that's that's an amusing sort of topical throwaway gag that's a bit self-referential there's the beginnings of all the other sort of um, academic reference and there are the tropes you were talking about in terms of the the sort of characters we meet now their their lines may not be as well polished as similar characters who deliver such lines in later books but they do just give you enough characterization to sort of fit those models mm. of what we expect from these 
Well, that character, um, Reese, whose main noticeable trait is he is always on the verge of saying something, reminds him of something and not getting to the <laughs> point. And uh, there's him. And then later on, there's Pringle. The keynote of Pringle's character was superiority. At an early period of his life, he was still unable to speak at the time his grandmother had died. This is probably the sole reason why he had never taught that relative to suck eggs. <laughs> In other words, he's uh, he's always giving advice where it's not wanted, and uh, it almost reminds me of Dickens. These characters who have one distinguishing quirk or characteristic to help the reader fix them in the mind. Oh, that's the one that has that tick, and that's the one that has that. Faulty. Yes, I think I think it would be going too far to claim there was a great depth of characterization there, but at least there's a differentiation between them, and I suppose that not of of senior boys they have each got at least one characteristic in spite of what i said earlier on about them all being a bit interchangeable but obviously one thing that's readily apparent here is that woodhouse loves wordplay and whilst you may have come here for for a, a, a tale of daring do in a recognizably sort of scholastic environment even some of those quotes you come out with the way they're phrased even if it's just narration of minor detail about somebody coming into the room he's been given an excuse to deliver that detail in several lines of prose where you know hmm. half of one might have done because yeah. it provides a bit of colour. Well, like we said in the letter earlier, where he was talking about to his publishers about how he was generally able to improve on his work on a second attempt. This is what we're talking about. And later on, he would write out his novels fast, rough draft, just getting the plot down. And then he would go back and rewrite it, putting all of the, the flavour in. Um, yes. And using all of these rhetorical devices that he would have learnt about in school um, indeed i mean that's a fair point that he would have he would have learned those devices at school and therefore it's sort of appropriate that he's using it in this context but he builds on those i think in later novels and obviously uses them less ham-fistedly and just for the just for the joy of it possibly hmm. okay marriott has to look after this boy who's called Wilson. He becomes a minor character, this younger boy. He gets out... his chance to shine, doesn't he, on yes. the sports field eventually. He does not turn out to need much protection No, Marriott. Anyway, Gethryn has also had a letter from his aunt, hence the glut of aunt's comment. And he has to meet his uncle at the train station and he hasn't read the letter properly or he's not really thought about it. And he's like, he doesn't know who this uncle is. He's expecting a rubicund old figure who's going to give him some money because that's what uncles are expected to do at this time in public schools, provide a tip, as it's called. His uncle turns out to be four years younger than him. And this fact of unusual relationship is dismissed very quickly with neither Gethryn nor the uncle nor Woodhouse being at all interested in the wider family circle. So it's just said, OK, that's what it is. We know this. Let's move on. There's, uh, a, there's a lovely bit, isn't there, where Farney, the, the uncle, just in reaction to 
Catherine's confusion starts to explain and he just cuts off halfway through and that's the main thing isn't it not a bit said the self-possessed youth your mater was my elder sister you'll find it works out all right look here a the daughter of b and c marries no look here i was born when you were four see <laughs> by, by which is just cut across the detail given up on explaining it and the only relevant conclusion is I'm four years younger than you. And um, um, Catherine replies, Oh, all right, said he. I'll take your word for it. You seem to have been getting up the subject. <laughs> but in terms of any greater detail, they yes. seem distinctly unbothered. Yeah. Now, fortunately, Woodhouse does mention that Catherine dimly remembers having heard about this uncle before, which I'm glad about because... I think it would be too hard to believe that he'd be completely unaware of his existence. That's um, a fair point, or you would think he was a potential victim of a piece of confidence trickery. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to insert an after-the-fact apology here. You can hear me and Alexander arguing about whether Varney is a likeable character or not at this point, Alex being pro and me anti. And I've changed my mind since. I now realise I was prepped to think ill of Farney because of some similarities he shares with some of Woodhouse's later boy characters, such as Ogden Ford. And now I think the similarity is superficial, and I actually quite like Farney too. Well, Farney um, turns out to be uh, quite he's, a card, doesn't he's, he? He's, um, he's not a very attractive figure. Uh, no, uh, but unattractive figures often make more interesting characters and if i had to pick the most interesting character or the character who was most right for development in this book it might be farney but well, like so many other books i find that he gets well sidelined fairly quickly doesn't well, yeah really let's talk quickly. about that a little later because i have something yes, to say sorry. about that too yeah right Right, Farney, unwilling to walk to the school from the train station, hails a cab and offers Gethryn a lift. And Gethryn generally misses every early opportunity to stamp his authority on his young charge because this high-handed, supercilious youth is hardly giving him a chance to get a word in edgeways. And Gethryn discovers that Farney has £14 in his possession, which is an astronomical amount of money for a schoolboy. In, in 1903. He explains that he's been to many schools, and there are a mixture of real and fictional schools, uh, in each case because he was expelled or because his father didn't like the school. Now, I've been reading a book called The Little Nugget recently, and in that, there's uh, the American schoolboy Ogden Ford has a similar litany of schools he's been to and been expelled from or moved on from. It's, it's very similar. And he, too, is a spoilt, repulsive youth. So I think what we have in uh, Farney here is the prototype of many spoiled, repulsive youths that boys, all of them, that uh, Woodhouse would write about. True, but I did find him very witty. Maybe that says more about me than it does about characters. 
when they get to the school, Gethryn tries to hush up their relationship to the other. Because I should have mentioned, not only is Farney coming to the school as a pupil, he's going to be in the same house as mm -hmm. Gethryn, so under Gethryn's personal control. Gethryn tries to hush up the relationship because obviously he's never going to hear the end of this. And by then it's too late because Farney yes. has already told somebody. Yeah. So he has to have his authority as head of the house undermined by the fact that he has this uh, <laughs> this uncle who's younger than him. Yeah, it's interesting in all of these school stories that the head of the house is seen to have this unpaid job to keep the house in line, really, when you'd think it would be a grown-up's job. But... but that is not an inaccurate representation, by my understanding, oh, no. of the, the setup of a boarding house. And the idea is you select your prefects carefully, because as is borne out in some of this story, the prefects have great authority to administer justice and organize and if you if you picked a rogue prefect then there's all sorts of problems mm -hmm. but essentially they enjoy the authority but mm -hmm. in theory at least they've had to earn it yes. and once they've been given it they don't take that responsibility lightly although you know, you may well say that Woodhouse's view of all this is quite idealised because he enjoyed school and he liked that situation that he'd been in. Whereas, of course, if you speak to people who've been through this, not all of them are necessarily of the same opinion. I suppose the theory is that the prefects will gain the skills of leadership that would suit them for positions governing the empire or in the army. Yes, indeed, in, in any field of endeavour, potentially. But it's uh, it's right that it would have been, you know, this this is not just a school that's going to give you uh, an academic grounding by teaching you the Aeneid or whatever. But it's, uh, it's going to give you responsibility and turn out a well-rounded boy who's ready to meet the wider world head on and, and having to help run a house full of mixed age and mixed ability boys will have been quite good grounding for that, I suppose. At least it can be seen. Farney is telling his dorm mate some spooky stories and uh, tells the story of a certain Pollock who is ever afterwards haunted by a head which appeared to him all day and every day, not excepting Sundays and bank holidays, in an upside-down position and wearing a horrible grin. I just like the insertion of not accepting Sundays and bank holidays. Absolutely. And uh, it's that sort of thing, which I don't know, I never quite know whether I appreciate it because I've been reading it in Woodhouse for 30 something years or whether there is just something inherently amusing about colour being provided through slightly unnecessary technical detail. I'm, I'm not very good at literary terminology, but I think that might be bathos. Ah, yes. Rings a bell. It's the sort of thing it might be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Farney begins to corrupt his schoolfellows and he floods the schoolroom. <laughs> that was a good prank. <laughs> I mean, quite why anybody doesn't get expelled for doing that, I suppose, must boil down to the fact they want the fees. 
there's this uh, line, he contrived to catch Farney in the act of performing some ingenious breach of the peace. And I just mentioned that because breach of the peace seems a very highfalutin term for a crank. It's, of course, a legal, legal term, isn't it? That, yeah, legalese uh, is always funny, isn't it? Indeed, although it is unlikely that even for flooding a form room, the authorities at the school would have involved the local constabulary, because I think that would have been an admission of failure on a pretty major scale. This is where the subplot comes in, which is about a poetry contest that is mandatory for the upper fifth, and they have to write a poem on the subject of Dido of Carthage, and a character called Lorimer can't write poetry, so his friend Pringle volunteers to write it for him. The next chapter, Farney, against explicit advice by his nephew, gets involved with the bad boy of the house called Monk and his cronies who try to borrow money off Farney and he gives them one of his classic put-downs that I think you were referring to earlier. Absolutely, but the, but the fact that he distributes that sort of put down to a couple of rogues who are used to getting their own way i think mm. um in it maybe not for you but for me it was he was he was getting extra levels of sympathy at that point for just putting putting the great and not so good in their place and then the next thing he does is uh, find his way to the local pub to play billiards <laughs> yes he, just at a point when it felt like he could not have garnered more sympathy with me, he sneaks out of bounds, with totally against regulations, junior boy. And what is his purpose in taking this huge risk? And and it should be said that he didn't just sneak to a pub that was round the corner. He went through a whole process of procuring a bicycle and then cycling some distance to not just on one occasion, but as far as I could tell, over a series of of weeks visit and revisit a pub and this is a 14 year old let us not forget who then or thereabouts becomes something of a pool shark at the pub um engaging in playing with the natives there for money which i just found outrageous but very amusing and so most Saturday afternoons would find Farney leaving behind him the flannel fools at their various wickets, Kipling reference, and speeding out into the country on his bicycle in the direction of the village of Biddlehampton, where mine host of the cow and cornflower, in addition to other refreshment for man and beast, advertised that ping pong and billiards might be played on the premises. It was not the former of these games that attracted Farney. He was no pinger, nor was he a pongster. It's the billiards. Oh, that's brilliant. I yes, I I chuckled uh, I out loud probably at the at the pinging and ponging. Yeah, I couldn't decide if I liked that or not, but it's certainly a harbinger of future wordplay from Woodhouse. That's probably uh, reminded you a bit too much of a a prime minister of more recent times, maybe. Yeah, I don't know when's the right time to have that conversation. <laughs> Farney playing billiards loses a lot of money. He goes from having £14 to having a few pounds. And finally, he tears the cloth in his, his queue and thus incurs a fine of £4. So he's in a predicament. He's in need of funds urgently. 
because if he's found out, he'll be flogged. He doesn't mind being expelled, but he doesn't want to be flogged. That is the only punishment that has any meaning for him. Then the next chapter, um, he goes to Monk, the aforementioned bad egg, and borrows some money off him at an extortionate rate of interest because Monk is seizing the opportunity to gain some influence here, partly because Farney is the uncle of Gethryn, and he's seeing this as, a, as ultimately might be something he can use against Gethryn. Some of the logic jumps that occur thereafter did leave me scratching my head for a moment thinking, well, why? Why yes. is it obligatory that this must happen in yeah. order for A to follow B? Now, Woodhouse later on obviously continues to do these sort of things. He he works all the characters into a state where there's only one possible way out of this predicament, and that is clearly to steal a cow cream. And <laughs> yes. you think, well, what, but why? Why didn't you just take out a modest loan? And it's like... Uh, <laughs> In, in and, fairness, and, this is a feeling I often get from other writers, of, um, particularly Victorian writers. There's these okay. codes of morals and etiquette which dictate that on no account can this thing happen, which oh, yes. to, to one, us one would reason. be the obvious way out of a situation. Now, there is an element of a code of conduct here that I think Gaston feels bound by some obligation but a lot of these other things like the way farney works himself into a pickle about exactly how he can get out of this situation sort of seems to lead to an illogical conclusion there is a little touch here of the kind of school story that woodhouse used to mock he used to mock the overly moralistic school stories which were in vogue before he started writing like tom brown is it when um Smith is introduced in Mike and Smith, he says. Yeah. Are you the bully, the pride of the school, or the boy who is led astray and takes to drink in chapter 16? There's <laughs> these cliches that these schoolboys who go to the bad and mix with the wrong sort, and there's definitely a heavy hint of this here. It's done with so a So whilst at the same time he's kind of making the point that, that I, as an author, am not entirely going down that road, I am at least prepared to lampoon it. Yes even though I am indulging in one or two of the cliches. <laughs> yeah, he needs to have some sort of drama to write about to make it compelling, but he wants to uh, remain true to the spirit of the schoolboy as he experienced it, which was not all melodramatic and serious and moralistic. It was fun and competitive. and uh... So here's a sort of side point then. You know, what he refers to as ragging, you know, or, or the, the boys got up some kind of rag, but mm. basically a prank or getting one over their schoolmaster is sort of indulged by Woodhouse. I suggest yes. that there's, there's no moralizing tone that these beastly boys have mistreated the poor schoolmaster, but neither is it quite so comedic as, you know, the Beano or the Dandy in well, terms of they're, they're the enemy that we need to get one over. Well, yeah, there's a, I think the Bass Street Kids and the Beano by Leo Baxendale were designed as a reaction to this sort of 
public school story, but yeah, that's, that's getting a bit off. The... <laughs> that's think... for your next podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an awful lot in his writings for the public school magazines that I find surprisingly tolerant of cheating and other misdemeanors that I would have thought his editors of these magazines might have questioned, given that this was a magazine aimed at the public school boys. And you'd have thought he would be sensitive bit for some of his seeming... Well, he's, in, he's being indulgent his, of misbehavior. His condoning of certain cheating and things. And he did get up to pranks himself at Dulwich. But, and, and clearly found them amusing, but not at the expense of his overall school career, which was academically worthy without being brilliant, but clearly very successful in extracurricular matters. Mucking about could clearly be part of the rounded schoolboy experience. Yes. And the other side of the coin is that you are fanatically loyal to your school. You might uh, not like some of the masters, but the school itself, you would... It's simplistic. I think it's... But it's not black and white simplistic. It's it's reflecting the fun that he felt mm. that school could and possibly should be. And there was no need to get all high and mighty about the pernickety morality of a, of a code of conduct. But there is a line there. There is a line that all of your comrades will hate you if you go past this line because you will no longer be honourable. If you if you break the code, if absolutely. You break the code, the slightly unwritten and vague the, code, the but, code um, of the Gethrins. <laughs> precisely. I suppose I'm just keenly aware that you were aiming to chronologically move through the the oh. chapters, and I've kind of wheeled off on one around the time that Farney's got into trouble with the monk and we haven't even really had big cricket match yet <laughs> well speaking of that's a good uh, segue there's a big cricket match with the mcc who are the uh, metropolitan cricket club for our non-cricket marylebone marylebone cricket club oh sorry well that shows my lack of knowledge of cricket I should say, um, when I was a child, I grew up in a cricket-obsessed household, uh, and cricket was always on, and I didn't like it, so I grew to hate it. It was the the radio with the cricket commentary that was in the backdrop. It just became an annoying noise, like insects. But I appreciate that this is... Uh, really... Very appropriate for crickets, I suppose. The opposite was probably true in my home, where there was not a great level of interest in cricket my father's family being scots and not notably obsessed by the sport and my mother not being desperately interested in in most sports that maybe there's an element of rebellion there but we're not here to discuss mine or yours in terms well, of the personal gives, background it gives the listeners a sense of where we're coming from when it comes yes. to cricket this book is being discussed by real people with genuine human stories behind them. I but... can ask you here if this is a cricket thing or a Woodhouse thing. I'll just give you another quote. In spite of the fact that he himself was playing in the match today and might under the circumstances reasonably look forward to a considerable dose of leather hunting. Uh, leather hunting there being used to mean fielding. Is that a common term or is that an excellent coinage by Woodhouse there? Ah, I could not 
say in all honesty whether that is him coining a phrase or whether somebody had done that before. Monk's plan to get Farney under his thumb hasn't really gone to plan because he said that Farney could repay him at the end of term, but otherwise he's not become one of Monk's cronies in a word. And Monk doesn't like this, so he decides to press for an early repayment of his loan and threatens to reveal the truth if he doesn't come through. So Farney, still afraid of the flogging, steals some money from a box in Gethryn's study, a charity collection box. And I think this is finally the point where he has crossed the line as far as readers of the book concerned. They think, oh, you, that's not cricket, you might say. Well, indeed, indeed. Ragging a schoolmaster or breaking petty uh, regulations that are specific to the school is one thing, but uh, but there is no getting around the fact that this is theft, plain and simple. Uh, charity money is a boot. Uh, indeed, well, worst uh, of all thefts. And Wilson, who we mentioned earlier, the uh, other younger pupil who's been given a named role so far, he uh, spots Farney doing this and Farney realises that he's sunk. He can't get away, away with it because Wilson will report. So he decides to run away and he leaves a note behind and decides to take all of the money rather than just what he needed. And there's a good quote here. Gethryn, though he had, as Farney knew, no overwhelming amount of affection for his uncle, might in a case of great need prove blood to be thicker as per advertisement, than water. <laughs> Indeed. And here, I think this is what you were referring to earlier when you were talking about these plot holes that Woodhouse somehow acknowledges. Mm. The workings of the human mind, and especially of the young human mind, are peculiar. It never occurred to Farney that a result equally profitable to himself and decidedly more convenient for all concerned, with the possible exception of Monk, might have arrived if he had simply left the money in the box and run away without it. <laughs> However, as the poet says, you can't think of everything. <laughs> See, there you go. Woodhouse making a virtue of his own plot limitation. As uh, TVTropes.org would say, he lampshades it. <laughs> he really struggled over his plots and he really liked to get all the plot holes ironed out. And sometimes the only thing you could do is say, well, he didn't think of it. Yeah. And be honest with your readership. I was just going to clarify the plot. He's run yeah. away from school on his bicycle, and this has all happened during the cricket match where the school is playing this prestigious cricket club. So it's a big deal. This is something that, you know, I could certainly relate to when I, obviously I didn't read this story when I had just left school, but I read similar, and I think the, the Mike story possibly has an MCC game or maybe the Golden Bat does but you know the mcc still field all manner of teams quite often simultaneously i mean M mcc has been around for 200 and however many years and codify the laws of the game what have you so they are very prestigious but uh, they, they put together teams to play a lot of schools during the summer and those teams will be made up of some luminaries, some make weights, but all probably decent cricketers. And for a lot of schools, still one of the highlights of their cricket season will be playing the mm. MCC team. So this is the match where 
reputations can be secured for all time by putting in a good performance against the MCC. And yeah. and the point is very much made in this in this story, of course, backing up what a lot of people would feel that, of course, even more important than that is the the collective result, the team outcome and not letting down the school because you know if the school could put up a good show against the mcc or even beat them then their uh, their reputation will be cemented beyond the school grounds you know amongst the wider public school community and, and absolutely beyond. so it's a big deal as you say yeah regarding the team that the mcc sends out there's a little joke about that isn't there that they're excited that this luminary is coming, but it turns out to be his brother. That's that's right. And of course, there's a little, I suppose the way that is confused is through a confusion over the initials. Cricket still is obsessed by initials as a way of denoting people. And so they mix up A.T. Blackwell and O.T. Blackwell, but We've without to... any great consequence for the plot. No. <laughs> it's just uh, one of these little details to keep Indeed. to add colour. But Gethrin is one of the bowlers for the school team. He's not the main bowler. They've got him in reserve. The school have gone in to bat first, and unfortunately, Gethrin has bowled out instantly. And then he realises he's left his hat in the school, so he has to. So he goes and finds it. And that's when he discovers the letter from Farney saying he's left and he realises he has to go and chase him and get him back for the honour of his family. Gethrin deduces where Farney will have gone to the train station. So he goes after them on a bicycle, aware that he is risking missing his bowling appearance. But he's confident that the school is going to do really well at batting and stay out batting for ages. I mean, there's a little insight there into the playing conditions. They clearly, and, it, and again, it's not spelt out, but as a as a vague student of the history of the game, kind of read between the lines, that the, the MCC match will have been a one-day match played one innings aside, but very much the first innings where whoever has either been sent in or has opted to bat first, depending on who won the toss, uh, will either bat until the conclusion of their innings or until such point as they want to declare it closed, which I'm not 100% sure would have been a legitimate outcome. It's irrelevant to the book. But, of course, when the second innings commences, will be entirely dependent on when the first innings closed there'll be a a break of some sort and then they'll restart so mm. the school having batted first and as you rightly pointed out the bishop um having already been dismissed uh, thinks um he's got plenty of time now there's a lunch interval that's obviously happens whilst the school innings is still going on and that's when he pops back to the house to get his hat seize the note and then takes his bike and rides off in pursuit of Farney. But meanwhile, the the team are going back out to resume their innings, and the last thing he hears 
is, is, is applause for some boundary having been hit. And he thinks, oh, you know, those chaps and there's a couple of decent batsmen still in. And I think they're only three wickets down going to be in for hours and uh, I've got until 5pm to get back here because frankly the second innings isn't going to start until then of course anybody knows cricket knows that unless you're one of the two batsmen when your team is batting you're not required to do anything but he will be required to do something as soon as it's their turn to field so off he goes thinking he's got all day and as you rightly point out he ends up, due to what happens in the match, having rather less time at his disposal. Sorry for that rather lengthy digression. It's, but... uh, it's important to the plot, and um, I'll yeah. take it on trust that all that makes some kind of sense. You brought me here for the cricket insight, and I feel I would have been <laughs> selling your listeners short if I didn't offer some of it. From the point of view of the plot, the point is he thinks he's got time, and he doesn't. Woodhouse does his best to make it readable and not just a string of details. I mean, I well remember the time when I was about 12 and got asked to write a story about something or other, and I decided to set it against a backdrop of a snooker match. And I was I was told in no uncertain terms by my English master at the time that listing who won each frame and by what scores did not constitute an intelligible story. And obviously, Woodhouse is almost keenly aware that he shouldn't fall into that trap. And yet, he can't help himself describing how many runs each player got at each juncture and their mode of dismissal, even Mm. when, of course, it is not massively relevant to the wider plot. Anyway, well, I, I, I sort of glazed over a bit in those sections. <laughs> I thought it well, was, I it's thought always it, an option, isn't it, as a reader, to just not bother taking it all in. I thought it was interesting that the MCC have a deathless author in their ranks. <laughs> I don't think that's supposed to be a, a cameo of Woodhouse himself, but he did play for an Arthur Conan Doyle's author's cricket team. And, he did, didn't he? There was quite an entertaining character who basically was conducting a conversation at the wicketkeeper and slipcordon throughout the whole time they were batting, which is recognisable, I think, amongst some players. And Was and he the, the one way... who was talking so much he didn't notice himself get bowled out? <laughs> that is how it ended, but not before he'd scored quite a few runs. And there was a lovely point at which... You could see there was some punctuation about halfway through a sentence. Rather nice one, that, eh? What? Yes. Got it just on the right place, you know. Not a bad bat, this, is it? What? Yes. One of Slogbury and Wangham's Sussex bankers, don't you know? Chose it myself. Had it in pickle all the winter. Yes. Play, sir. From the Empire. Eh, what? Oh, right. Yes. Good make these Sussex bankers. Oh, well fielded. And Woodhouse afterwards says at the word spankers he had affected another drive but marriott at mid-off had stopped it prettily and i just thought well you can believe that back to gethryn at the beginning of the unexplored country an irresponsible person recommended him to go straight on he couldn't miss the road said he it was straight all the way gethryn thanked him rode on and having gone a mile came upon three roads each of which might quite well have been considered a continuation of the road on which he was already. 
one curved gently off to the right, the other two equally gently to the left. He dismounted and the feelings of gratitude which he had borne towards his informant for his lucid directions vanished suddenly. He gazed searchingly at the three roads, but to single out one of them as straighter than the other two was a task that baffled him completely. A signpost informed him of three things. By following road one he might get to Brindleham and ultimately if he persevered to Corden. Road number two would lead him to old inns, whatever they might be, with the further inducement of Little Benbury while if he cast in his lot with road three, he might hope sooner or later to arrive at much middle fold on the hill and lesser middle fold in the vale. But on the subject of Anfield and Anfield Junction, the board was silent. I think that's wonderful. It's a great passage, isn't it? Very relatable. And of course, immediately following that, the uh, the further assistance of a generic country bumpkin. <laughs> yes, complete with the spelt out yokelish pronunciations, who... Uh, who can't seem to tell him the way to Anfield, um, but does proceed to tell him all about the aforementioned Old Inns. I was born at Old Inns, I was, continued the man, warming to his subject. Lived there 55 years, I have. You go straight down the road and you come to Old Inns. Yes, that be the way to Old Inns. Which, of course, you may consider to be slightly belittling of the bumpkin, but at the same time provides a useful backdrop for Gethryn, hard-pressed for time, being not given a response to his very pertinent question about how the devil he can get to the station he's heading for, and being told someone's life story, which, again, is quite relatable for anybody who's been pressed for time trying to access a nugget of information mm. and singly failing to get hold of it. He also gets a puncture and all this raises the tension and the drama and then it reaches a culmination when he gets to the train station and sees that the train is leaving. Only for us to uh, realise that it's all right because Varney also failed to catch the train and he's there on the station. So that was a nice bit of misdirection. So, yes, at that point, of course, he uh, remonstrates charitably with Farney and manages to get him to head back to the school. But, of course, with the inevitable consequence for Gethryn, at least, that he has long since missed not only the moment when he should have been taking the field, but he actually missed the entire game because of the delays. And of course, meanwhile, those on the field initially thinking that he was just late back from getting from his hat. Precisely, that he had gone AWOL. And so he's now at a point where he's, uh, he's in fear of what the repercussions will be, especially as, of course, the MCC have, have won the game long since and the charitable mood that people may have been in if uh, the school had somehow won is therefore not the case at all yes it's the worst possible outcome for him uh, we could just pause a moment to reflect on the fact that Farney leaves the book at this point we're halfway through he's the title character he's the prefect's uncle the book is ostensibly about him but now we won't hear much about him anymore basically what he's done here is set up the premise of the rest of the book 
by making Gethryn miss the match. Um, Indeed. And I everything don't... that follows in the book has leads on from the fact that Gethryn has missed the match. So, so I don't imagine you shed too many tears about the departure of Farney from these pages in. You didn't seem to well, like him much. No, I thought the fact that he stole the money meant that he had to leave the book because Woodhouse, yeah. although this is only his second book and his readers wouldn't know this yet, Woodhouse doesn't like writing about really unpleasant characters, I don't think. He likes to keep it light. He doesn't. So I think that's fair. He, at this point, is being banished out of the book. I think probably he he didn't like... I, I get the feeling he didn't like Farney and he didn't want to write about him anymore. Why did he make him such an interesting character? (laughs) Well, he was writing this book very quickly. He was doing all sorts of other other things. He was writing the column for the Globe. He was writing short stories. He was writing poems. He was frantically trying to earn enough money to to earn a living as a writer when he was 20. And this is his second novel in quick succession. And... Yeah, I think he was learning as he went, and it's not a perfect construction for a plot, I must say. But for for me, the idea of a, a fearless fourteen-year-old just seemed way beyond the the normal sort of basic Woodhouse by numbers. I suppose I suppose there are other yeah. better examples of this later on, but it was you know well, there was there was wit and wisdom in amongst his errant characteristics actually this might become a running theme of the podcast Mm. the standard line about woodhouse is that his best work was from from about 1930 to 1950 when he was at Mm. his peak and you may choose to read his other work if you like but it's completely optional and it's not as good particularly (laughs) his early work which is his apprenticeship Now, I can see that point of view, but I personally quite like reading his early work because it's less predictable than his later work. He'd got his formula down to a T later on. He knew exactly what worked for his style. You tend to know what's going on, what's going to happen. Whereas with these early books, when he's still experimenting, there's still a chance of a surprise here and there, even though it might not be quite the same masterclass in humorous writing. Yes, and I suppose when you have the benefit of knowing the rest of the canon, then that's actually got all the potential delight of digging out a rare B-side from a really well-known band that you like, for example. You go, well, this is not necessarily the greatest thing they ever did, but somehow it's something I've never read before, which in itself brings a delight. And if that throws up some quirky characteristics that were not exhibited in the the mainstream or the well-known stuff then so much the better that's a good analogy farney lied to gethryn and said he gave monk the money because of the threat of expulsion whereas actually he was worried about being flogged but he knew that gethryn would actually quite approve of him getting flogged and that wouldn't cut any ice with him Ah. so so he pretends that it's uh because he's going to get expelled and that's carry some weight with Gethryn because of the disgrace to the family. Yes. So it's his family duty to shield his relative. And this is the kind of typical moral conundrum that you can have a plot revolve around. Because not only does Gethryn shield Farney from the authorities, he also considers himself 
under a vow of silence never to explain what's happened. This is all a secret. So not only has he missed this important match and arguably caused his team to lose because they really needed another bowler to give their the other bowler yes. some relief. He can't even explain why he's done it. So he comes back under a cloud and he just has to say to his friends, look, you'll just have to trust me on this. I had my reasons. And they yes. say, well, we believe you because we know you're a good guy, but that's not going to cut ice with <laughs> school wide. There's gonna, you're going to be um, in trouble. That's right. Because we're not talking about low key consequences within a small group of people. Of course, this is the school team again you know in their probably major match of the season or at least one of them and so everybody knows that uh, the bishop cut off halfway through the game and left the school in the lurch and they've lost as a consequence so it kind of does divide the characters doesn't it um, as to how they how they react yeah there's the pro gethrin and the anti gethrin lobby but even the pro gethrin lobby think it's all a bit thick well, it, it, I mean, it, to us as the reader, it seems slightly odd that anybody doing something quite so obviously, well, unacceptable and then providing zero explanation would get away with it, um, mm. you know, and, and maybe there's something laudable in the fact that he didn't want to make it up. Uh, he didn't want to provide some feeble excuse he just said yeah as you said you've got to trust me on this see again the the uninitiated or those who have not totally school uh, school in the ways of the workings of of how the establishment would have operated will be thinking well the guys just walked out of school for a whole afternoon surely he'd have to answer to schoolmasters here not just his peers but we play out this this part of the narrative sort of thinking, oh, he's going to get his comeuppance or, well, his slightly undeserved comeuppance from the housemaster or the headmaster or something. But, of course, it transpires that as the head of house and it having been a Saturday afternoon, he was under no obligation to be yes, on the school grounds. And he plays cricket for the team voluntarily. And if he chooses to voluntarily stop playing cricket for the team halfway through a match. That is no business of the schools. Well, That's between ma- him and the club. There's a master called Robertson who makes this point, and he only appears in this scene, I think. <laughs> in this scene, the, the master called Robertson really, uh, we feel like he's the voice of reason as Woodhouse sees it. And not only do, does he defend Gethrin in terms of the legality of what he did, but also when Jeffson, uh, the other master who's really angry, says, well, I know one thing, he won't play for the team again. Uh, Robertson replies, there is something very refreshing about your logic, Jeffson. Because a boy does not play in one match, you will not let him play in any of the others. Though you admit his absence weakens the team. Indeed, logic versus the code. I've cut out a section here in which I pointed out that there are more quotations from W.S. Gilbert in this book than in any other Woodhouse novel, and I also noted one of the quotations from the Bible. I'd, I would just point out at that juncture that I think there were some, some bits of literature uh, I've probably only experienced secondhand through Woodhouse. And oh, I, absolutely, yes. And I can tell 
that obviously this must be a quotation somewhere because it crops up again. And and sometimes, of course, it's, it, you know, the, the characters quoting or paraphrasing quote their source, you know, cite, cite their reference. And, and obviously, I've never actually read it, but I don't need to. <laughs> you don't know that. Well, possibly. I, but I think, oh, well, that's, that's a, a snappy little quotation from wherever. Um, that's good enough for me. Let's get on to the subplot. Which one? The, the Poetry Prize. Pring yes, the, uh, it's treatment of Dido and all that. Pringle has, as I mentioned earlier, has offered to write a poem for his friend who has to write a poem for the Poetry Prize. And Pringle doesn't have to write one because I guess he's not in the same form or something. But he keeps putting it off and um, this is very humorously treated the way he keeps slipping out of his mind as he's interested in various cricket games. And he goes to see a family friend called Colonel Ashby and he's playing cricket with the Colonel's children. And he uh, mentions the poem to Colonel Ashby and Ashby happens to remember a poem about Dido in an obscure book he has that a friend of his had bought by mistake. <laughs> and Pringle thinks, oh, this will be handy. I might as well make use of this. And he copies the poem out. And initially he's only thinking he'll uh, take inspiration from it. But then, of course, he forgets all about it again because he wants to play more cricket. But it's interesting that he doesn't intend to cheat at first. It's like a Greek tragedy, the steps <laughs> that gradually lead to him. How appropriate. Ending up, how appropriate indeed. <laughs> Although it's um, Roman tragedy. It's Roman, but it's still tragic. Or Carthaginian. Uh, yeah, so basically his friend says, where's this poem then? And he, he just hands him this poem that he's copied out from a book and pretends it's his. So the person who hands it in under his name is completely ignorant that it's not an original work. So, Lorimer. Lorimer. Yep. I knew it was, a, it was a slightly more tangential character. We need to introduce another character now who we've not mentioned yet called Norris. Norris is the captain of the Eleven, isn't he? Yes. Norris is the head boy of Jeffson's, which is a rival house to Leicester's. And um, he's also the captain of the cricket team. And it should be said, in the aftermath of the bishop's mysterious, unexplained disappearance for the second half of the MCC match, he falls very much into the anti-Gethryn camp yeah he's furious with Gethryn and um this animosity between the two is uh undercurrent of the second half of the book anyway Norris decides he's going to drop Gethryn from the school cricket team so Gethryn takes it with good grace he was expecting it he concentrates on his role as captain of the house cricket team indeed and he makes some um, slightly unexpected uh, success of well, that job. Well, what happens first is Monk, who has a long-standing gripe against Gethryn, uh, but is a member of the, the House cricket team, Indeed. decides to start a petition to get him to resign as captain of the cricket team. They get quite a lot of names on this petition, but Gethryn gets a tip-off that it's going to happen, and he decides that he's just going to um, call their bluff and exclude them all from the cricket yep. team and find his, new people to replace them 
his feeling is there are enough boys in the house for him to find alternatives. And yeah. obviously, Monk had something of a point in not appreciating the way Gethryn did things because he seemed to get them all to attend compulsory fielding practice before morning <laughs> school, yes. which uh, I can well imagine, you know, it's the sort of thing that goes down reasonably well with rowers, you know, but it's not really standard behaviour for cricketers. However, it was part of Gethryn's regime for trying to get Leicester's to punch above their weight in the house cricket competition this year. And as you were saying, and he um, he calls the bluff of those who would remove him. And of course, this involves bringing in one or two junior boys to fill the roles that the errant seniors were hitherto occupying. One of them is, is Wilson, isn't it, from, from earlier on? Yes, and this is the underdog plot I always talking about. Indeed. This is a class this is classic underdog stuff. You have to suffer an extra setback before you can come back stronger. And they do surprisingly well. And then they're due to come up against Jeffson's, which is Norris's house. But Norris <laughs> so it so happens that Norris gets an invitation to his uncle's place that day and he's keen to play in a village cricket match because he knows it's going to be a lot of fun so he excuses himself from that this match thinking that it will be an easy walk over for Jeffsons and he comes back and he finds that that Leicester Gethryn's team have won. Side cricketing note which I feel I must oblige you with it also reading between the lines the house match is clearly a two innings game because they do go into the detail of the fact that Leicester's have posted a not terribly demanding score but well over a hundred and that the response from Jeffson's is for them to have been bowled out for 20 something and they then bat again on the same afternoon and get bowled out for something that still leaves them in total short of what Leicester's had posted. Now, in this instance, and I know you're going to come on to the fact that there are obvious parallels between Norris's behaviour here and what Gethin had done earlier on, that he is on his way back from the game where he had incidentally, although it's not Jermaine's the plot, performed well for the village team. And he's ruminating about what the state of play might be at the end of what is clearly day one of a multi-day game that would have been expected to carry on the following Saturday. And it's then that he finds out that um, Jeffsons have already lost by an innings. Well, you said at the start that Gethryn is our point of view character, but in this chapter, we go along for a ride with Norris. He becomes our point of view character, and uh, we actually miss the Lester Jeffsons match altogether. It's all told in retrospect. It is, and this happens a lot in Woodhouse. He will take a really big scene and relate it entirely in dialogue. 
and this often works really well, especially when he needs a scene to be quite climactic, but he can't think of a way of making it climactic. This is a good device for, you know, putting a lot of character into the way it's related. And, um... I also suspect this might have worked better for someone like you who wasn't that interested in all the technical detail of the game for it to be revealed in one conversation rather than a sort of blow-by-blow account that yes. we got of the MCC match. And I think it's quite glorious the way um, Norris only gradually clicks us to what's happened. And then we went in and made 21. 121? No, just a simple 21 without any trimmings of any sort. <laughs> And then, as you say, there's the obvious implication, for he had been hoping against hope that the parallel nature of the two incidents would be less apparent to other people than it was to himself. Indeed, and, and of course, this my... is, is where the, the first seeds of a softening of uh, approach with respect to, to Gethrin start to brew in, in his mind. But first, somebody has to get injured. The next thing mm -hmm. that happens is Gosling is injured from playing with his little sister. So Norris reinstates Gethryn to the school team and Gethryn thinks about refusing Marriott. But man, that's rank treason. If you're put down to play for the school, you must play. There's no question about it. If Norris knocked you down with one hand and put you up on the board with the other, you'd have to play all the same. You mustn't have any feelings where the school is concerned. Nobody's ever refused to play in a first match. It's one of the things you can't do. Norris hasn't given you much of a time lately, I admit. Still, you must lump that. Excuse Sermon. I hope it's done you good. <laughs> to which um, uh, Gethryn replies, Very well, I'll play. It's rather rot, though. Marriott. No, it's all right, really. It's only that you've got into a groove. You're so used to doing the heavy martyr that the sudden change has knocked you out, rather. Come and have an ice before the shop shuts. And I think this is quite penetrating psychology from Marriott. Oh, indeed. But that's what I was saying about the code of being true to your school, as um, Mike Love would say. I was going to say. <laughs> so, as you say, a number of devices there to lead this situation towards a conclusion. But, but uh, Woodhouse doesn't want the climax to come too soon, so, oh, no. he make, so he makes Gethryn actually not play very well in the next match. Which I thought was nice. Mm. You know, I don't want it to be too simple. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not looking for a, a three-minute pop song here. I'm still looking for sort of an album's worth of detail. And, and we are left, therefore waiting for the, the full rapprochement until later. So uh, we're, we're back to the grown-ups now at the headmaster's ah, table. Yeah. The headmaster has got a former pupil, who is now an academic, to come and judge the school prizes. Aretum, for prizes, read poems. And he's not very happy about it because he thinks they're all going to be rubbish. And he's sitting there with the headmaster and uh, one or two of the masters, and he grabs a random example and reads it out. And it's naturally the poem we've encountered already <laughs> that has been purloined from a published book. And when the uh, judge of the poems has gone out of the room, one of the masters tells the headmaster that he wrote it, that in his youth he wrote a book of poetry called The Dark Horse. 
which he has had published at his own expense. Sort of <laughs> the detail way. there about his vanity project. But, uh, but clearly, this anthology of his own slightly scratchy student poetry has found its way into the library of this yes. <laughs> the and, random and this, connection who's copied it this unlikely connection is explained away earlier by the title the dark horse meaning that it's uh, mistaken by almost everyone for a, a sports related work and indeed the headmaster when he hears the title of the works suggests that it might be in the white melville line and i had to look white melville up he is a popular author and poet of to eat drink and be merry because tomorrow we die fame Anyway, the head is very shocked to hear that there's been plagiarism in one of their entries. And he says this extraordinary thing. Wholesale plagiarism of this description should be kept for the school magazine. Now, I don't know if that's a condemnation of school magazine fare or surprising leniency towards plagiarism where there is not a prize at stake. Possibly. Well, Woodhouse was the editor of his uh, school magazine, so he must have known about this sort of thing going on. At 30 years distance, I can probably uh, safely admit that I once won a £15 book token by copying out an article from the Lloyds Bank Economic Bulletin and submitting it for a prize competition. Alexander. (laughs) I bought a copy of Wisdom Cricket Almanac with it. (laughs) So... I think it was so forgivable, I've decided. Well, I'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> yes, and so the head gets um, Lorimer, the ostensible author of this poem, in and grills him. And Lorimer doesn't have the faintest idea what he's talking about because he has no idea that Pringle has plagiarised the poem. And then he goes back and tells Pringle that the headmaster was babbling about some nonsense about a book called The Dark Horse. Pringle realises they've been rumbled and together they decide to confess in the hope of a more lenient treatment which they do get their punishment is extra lessons which means they can't take part in the final which is how the subplot finally ties in with the main plot that's the only connection is that they play for schoolhouse yeah and they can't play in the last match and that contributes to the result that's right where Leicester's managed to see off the much more fancied schoolhouse due to the absence of their two star players from the first eleven. Precisely. And it's <laughs> worth pointing out here that this whole prize poem subplot is strongly reminiscent of a short story called The Prize Poem. It was published in July 1901 and it was the first short story that P.G. Woodhouse got printed in the public school magazine and it was included later in Tales of St. Austin's, his short story collection, which came out only a couple of months after a prefect's uncle. So he clearly didn't think they were similar enough to warrant suppressing that short story. No. In both stories, the moral is you shouldn't make these things compulsory. Some boys are into writing poetry and some aren't. And it's pointless to get them to waste their time writing poetry if they're not. And in each occasion, one of the boys tries to get out of it. And as a result, confusion and uh, (laughs) consternation results. 
And in the, in the short story, I think there's a poem somebody writes and it keeps blowing away in the wind and three separate boys get hold of it and they all think, oh, this is good. I don't have to write it now. <laughs> and three identical poems are submitted. I'd say that's sufficiently different. I mean, there are far more obvious similarities between subplots in other bits of Woodhouse. Yes, uh, sure. Later on. So we're coming to the final stretch of the book. As we said, the final cricket house match came and Gethryn's team won. The book could end here. Gethryn's proven his worth with his schoolmates and he's largely accepted again. And he's seen off the worst elements of his house. But Woodhouse feels that that would be unsatisfying if he didn't get full exoneration, I think. So what happens is we skip over the summer holidays. We come back in the winter term and there's no more cricket. Cricket is forgotten. It's all uh, rugby football. Gethryn gets a letter from his uncle, Farney, actually returning the four pounds, apologising and explaining that he's no longer coming to the school, to Beckford. He has been sent to France. And this somehow is, uh, implies that there is some good in him deep down. I knew it all along. Yes, you've been and, sticking up for him. And you were you were confounded by this. You you thought he must have been must have been putting it on. I thought maybe his dad was twisting his arm, literally. Anyway, for some reason Gethryn feels that now Farney isn't in the school, he's at liberty to tell his friends about what happened. But he doesn't want to tell everyone because reasons. So, and he doesn't want his friends to tell anyone either because he doesn't want people to think he's using them as his proxy, I suppose. Yes. So he tells his closest friends and swears them to secrecy. But uh, Marriott thinks that Norris, who is also in the rugby team, is not giving Gethryn passes because he doesn't like him. And as a result, they're losing matches. So he thinks for the sake of the rugby team alone, uh, Norris needs to be told that Gethryn is innocent of any wrongdoing. But they can't tell him because they've sworn not to. So they're at an impasse. But fortunately, Wilson, the sort of movement behind the scenes that keeps cropping up in the plot, Wilson overhears this conversation and takes it upon himself to tell Norris. And that basically solves everything. Norris gives Gethryn a pass in the next rugby game and Gethryn scores a spectacular try or something. Well, you've, I mean, I am not rugby football experts and I'm less well disposed to it now than I might have been given that Scotland lost to France today. Sorry if that gives a clue to anyone of when we recorded this, but it is a remarkably purple bit throws this this bit of redemption on the rugger field but for anybody who does care about the sporting side of it there is a fellow called Wogan who clearly didn't play cricket or he's only just joined the school because I'm pretty sure he was not mentioned up until some people are more rugby people aren't they very true but Wogan, damn good player, but selfish, it seems. And he has intercepted a pass from the nomads, who I think the uh, school are playing on this particular occasion. And of course, you know, even I, as not particular rugby fan, can appreciate the theatre 
of an intercepted pass. So it looks like nomads are ploughing away to, to score against the school. And this fellow, Wogan, intercepts it, runs upfield with the ball. And it's like, blimey, this is suddenly turning into really good passage for the school and why they might even score a try. But everybody's thinking, and of course, Woodhouse's narrative leads you to believe that Wogan's so selfish that he, he'll, he'll just try and finish off the job himself. And because the Nomads are an adult team, they'll just bring him down and it will completely waste the opportunity. But to confound this expectation, Wogan passes to Norris and Norris then has a clear run to touchdown for a try. And yet utterly unnecessarily he sees Gethrin on the other side who's hoved into view having shadowed him all the way upfield and he basically passes to Gethrin just so Gethrin can score this try. It's a very visible vote of confidence in him. Precisely. But they, well, thank um... you for pressing that so I didn't have to. <laughs> I forgot to look up the Nomads earlier. I've just done it now. It seems they are a real club or were a real club, the Marlborough Nomads, a 19th century English rugby union club, one of the founders of the Rugby Football Union in oh, okay. 1868. In some respects, this is the rugby equivalent of the, the MCC. MCC yeah, it's worth mentioning that Woodhouse mostly refers to rugby as simply football as was the custom at uh, rugby playing schools of which his school was one. Certainly was at mine. I remember one of the regulations of the school club as it called itself somewhat pretentiously was um, football shall be played by the rugby union rules which uh, struck me as amusing at the age of 11 because i thought it might as well say snooker shall be played by the rules of table tennis or something but of course i came to realize that that is the way it's done where you don't play soccer as yes. he and indeed i would refer to that lesser code of the game are you a fan of the association flavor ian uh, no, I can't say I am. Good. Well, you can be neutral on this topic and <laughs> I can be biased. Any final thoughts? Well, I'd, I'd say the, the very last bit, there's a slight allusion to the fact that Gethrin, and I don't know, probably I'm sort of guilty of this occasionally, was inclined to cut in over Reese when they talked to one another. And the, oh, the book yes. actually ends in Reese cutting over the top of Gethrin. Yeah, was... to, to remind the listener, this was where we started, the reference to a serial that is cut off by the magazine's premature folding. <laughs> that was in reference to Reese's stories that never seemed to come to an end. But That's it. And so Reese actually then cuts in over the top of the other, saying that that reminded me of a chap his brother or my brother had known at Sandhurst. And I thought that's a much better way to end the story than on some slightly slushy note. But it was, again, like so much of the best parts of this book, not especially germane to the plot. But that's Woodhouse for you. Yeah. Don't necessarily come here because you're going to be gripped by a very intricate plot line. You come here because the style in which you are carried towards its conclusion. The 
plots are a means to an end, but they are necessary. And as I said, this is a more solid plot than the previous novel, but it's not necessarily a more entertaining novel as a whole. Well, I shall listen out for interest for episode one and maybe actually go and read that because I haven't read that either. But if you want a pithy summary, you probably won't get it from me, but if you want a relatively brief summary, I did very much enjoy reading it. It is, for sure, early Woodhouse with imperfections and things we can sort of see were very much a work in progress with regard to his later style, but it's not out of character. It's not a failure by any means. It is an amusing diversion in the way that reading any Woodhouse is, and its flaws and imperfections only add to the interest for somebody who's read an awful lot of his output that it brings an insight into the development of his work. Thank you so much, Alexander Rennie. Thank you, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure.